This is episode 78 of Ethics and Culture Cast from Notre Dame's De Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to episode 78 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the De Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture at the University of Notre Dame. I'm Ken Hellenius, the communications specialist at the center. In this episode, we chat with Michael New, a social researcher and commentator who has been a faculty member of our Notre Dame Vita Institute since the very beginning. We talk about some of the positive trends that he sees in pro-life legislation and the importance of connecting intellectual theory with boots-on-the-ground action. Let's sit down together for this hope-filled conversation about the culture of life. Well, Michael New, thank you so much for coming to be on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Much appreciated. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Where did you do your studies? Kind of those sorts of things. Sure. I was born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, for undergraduate, I went to Dartmouth College. I have both a master's degree uh, and a Ph.D. in political science from Stanford University, and I've had a bunch of academic appointments. I've taught at the University of Alabama, University of Michigan-Dearborn, Ave Maria University, and right now I'm entering my fifth year, or midway through, I guess you'd say, you know, in my fifth year at the Catholic University of America. I'm an assistant, I'm an assistant professor of practice at the Bush School of Business there at CUA, so that's a little bit about me. Yeah, fantastic. What did you study as an undergrad in at Stanford? Sure, at Dartmouth, I did a double major. Uh, my first major was government, and then I did a second major, which was uh, economics modified with math. Uh, at Stanford, uh, I got a master's degree in statistics, uh, a master's degree in political science, and a PhD in political science. Okay, so not just kind of theory, but also numbers and then how to put it into practice? Yep, quantitative. That, that's kind of the main work I do. I do a lot of quantitative social science work that's kind of of interest to pro-lifers. And I've been on the faculty of the Vitae Institute, as I joke, since conception. I was at the very first Vitae in 2011. How did you first get involved in kind of pro-life? I mean, what drew you to the pro-life interest? Uh, let's see, there's three things. Uh, there's how I became pro-life, how I became interested in pro-life research, and how I became kind of interested in pro-life street-level activism. You know, I grew up in Pittsburgh. I'm a cradle Catholic. I went to a Catholic grade school, a Catholic high school. But honestly, growing up, you know, abortion was not on my radar screen. You know, I was like a lot of other high school students. I was scrambling around, trying to make good grades, trying to get myself into a good college. And this issue, I didn't really give much thought to. I remember uh, my junior year, I did see the movie The Silent Scream in a religion class. And that's a famous movie where, uh, you know, narrated by Bernard Nathanson, which depicts an ultrasound of an abortion. And uh, I remember being kind of disgusted by it, but I didn't really run to the barricades and start doing pro-life stuff. So I enroll at Dartmouth College in the fall of 1993. And honestly, uh, my first year there, I was not that happy. The only things I really enjoyed about Dartmouth were the conservative political groups I got involved with as an undergrad. And I think that started steering me down a more of a pro-life path. At probably some point freshman year, I would have been comfortable identifying as pro-life. But at the time, it was another issue. It was like kind of the capital gains tax or term limits. So sophomore year rolls around, and I'm sitting at Mass. And I wish I could remember better what happened. But I just remember something hit me, like a ton of bricks. Like, 
abortion is a really important issue. This is life and death. This is much more important than kind of the capital gains tax, term limits, or whatever the idea of the week is. And, you know, I felt that I should be doing something about it. Well, you know, I'm probably a 19-year-old college sophomore. You know, what can I do? Maybe start a campus group. So shortly thereafter, I talked to the priest, and I mentioned to our campus priest, I'd like to start a pro-life group. And he tells the other students already working on it. He gave me the student's name. It was a guy named uh, Paul DeGaetano. And uh, I emailed the student and uh, worked with him. And we had our pro-life group at Dartmouth. And this is before Students for Life. You know, we were kind of left our own devices. You know, we wrote letters. Uh, we actually did uh, host a conference uh, the uh, spring of 97. Uh, we actually had Alan Keyes. Uh, came to campus. Uh, one of the nice things about New Hampshire is that uh, presidential candidates are always very eager to visit campus. So uh, that was a, a nice event for us. So uh, and again, I stayed active, uh, you know, doing campus pro-life stuff as a Stanford grad student, again, working with the campus group, bringing speakers there. Uh, my last year at Stanford, we collaborated with the students at Berkeley on a conference. Uh, we actually had a uh, pro-life rally on the Berkeley campus featuring Saren Foster, a feminist for life, and there were some hecklers and some pushback, but kind of interesting. Some of the people came to protest actually liked what Saren had to say. I mean, she jumped up and said, uh, I think UC Berkeley should do more to help pregnant students and parenting students. Everybody cheered. Even the left-wing people who supported abortion thought that was a good idea. So uh, that was an interesting event. So that's how I kind of got interested in the issue. Uh, that said, as a Stanford grad student, it never really dawned on me to combine my interest in the sanctity of life issues uh, with my research. You know, in a lot of academic fields, including political science, there's kind of a herd mentality. Uh, you know, you essentially research what the best people in your field are researching. And in the late 90s, early 2000s, I did not see a lot of political scientists really writing about abortion. So my dissertation dealt with state-level budget rules and fiscal limits. But it got me thinking that in the 1970s, we had a tax revolt. And one thing I kind of saw in my research is that a lot of the things that people put in place to try to limit government during the tax revolt didn't work that well, or at least didn't work that well long term. And there's, you know, an important, you know, kind of truth to that, which is just because you're trying to do something, you know, doesn't mean you're actually you know, achieving something. So, you know, good intentions are one thing, but, you know, we have to ask a question. You do the laws we put in place actually work. So I noticed that pro-lifers, you know, work very hard to pass all these Incremental pro-life laws. We try to pass laws requiring, you know, parental involvement. We pass informed consent laws. We try to prevent state Medicaid programs from paying for abortion. Do these laws work? And I didn't really see much research on it, but I did see that the Center for Disease Control did release, you know, state-by-state -state abortion rate data. So I thought to myself, you know, why, why do we study on this? You know, why not analyze some of these state-level pro-life laws? And state politics is what my background is. And this is something I can do. So I get my PhD in 2002. I moved to Boston. I got a research job at Harvard that gave me some time to work on my own projects. And my plan was to try to study out uh, by January of 2003. I wanted to study out by the 30th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. And I did a study and found the laws had positive effects. I wasn't really plugged in. I remember emailing it out to a few people and it didn't get much of a response. So, you know, January 2003 comes and goes. And I was really lucky to be at Harvard because the Kennedy School of Government had a visiting fellow program, and they'd bring political professionals into D.C. to meet with students and meet with faculty and, you know, run seminars. And one of the visiting fellows that spring was a guy named Stuart Butler, who at that time was the vice president of domestic policy at the Heritage Foundation. And he ran a seminar on healthcare policy. So I attended the seminar. I got to know Stuart a little bit, and I had lunch with him. 
and I asked him would Heritage Foundation be interested in doing a study on the impact of pro-life laws. And he was interested, but this time Heritage didn't really focus on social issues. Heritage Foundation at that time was largely focused on economics and foreign policy, and social issues were uh, not emphasized. So there was interest, but there was also concern uh, that this is the first time they ever did a study on abortion, and they really want to make sure their I's are dotted and their T's are crossed. So that summer, they had an intern reconstruct my whole data set from scratch. So you had abortion data from 50 states over probably 20 years, holding a range of economic and demographic variables constant. Uh, this intern did find a few minor mistakes, but nothing that really changed my results, and they agreed to publish. So January of 2004, the day of the March for Life, Heritage Foundation uh, releases my study. And it does show that, yes, incremental pro-life laws do work, that requiring parental involvement of minors lowers minor abortion rates. Informed consent laws, giving women information about alternatives, that lowers abortion rates. Uh, found that you know limiting taxpayer funding of abortion through Medicaid programs, that lowers abortion rates. So it comes out, you know, the day of the march, and I kind of thought the pro-life movement would come by, pat me on my head, thank me for my study, tell me what a nice guy I was, and that'd be about it. Didn't work that way. People were very excited about this. And all of a sudden, I'm getting all kinds of invitations to write and speak, and you know, I'm all too happy to do this. And one thing I just really hadn't realized was that, to be honest, uh, the pro-life movement didn't really have its own kind of in-house social scientist. And that's what I was trained to do. So I'm like, you know what? This is a good cause, a great cause. You know, I agree with these people. I'll just throw it over my shoulder and run with it. So, uh, you know, I was often asked to, you know, critique studies the other side put out. Uh, thankfully, Catherine Lopez at National Review took a real interest in my writing, and I got to write for National Review Online, and they kind of turned me into a blogger. So I'm on the corner to this day about once a week, you know, writing about sanctity of life topics. And turning me into a blogger was a good idea because you know, I didn't have to write a full article. If a poll came out or a study came out, and I just want to get some quick commentary out, it was a good outlet for me. So that's kind of how I got interested in writing and research, and I've obviously have uh, you know, turned some of those policy studies into academic studies. I've written you know, for peer-reviewed journals on the impact of pro-life laws, so something I continue to do to, to this day. Um, another thing I do that might be of interest to your listeners is I help coordinate sidewalk counseling efforts outside the D.C. Planned Parenthood. So again, always interested in pro-life issues, and I was always interested in like the history of the pro-life movement. And for a long time, there wasn't really much that had been written. That's changed the past, you know, five, ten years. But for a long time, there was very little history. And one book I was reading, I think around 2006, was a book called Wrath of Angels. And it was about the history of, like, street-level pro-life activism, sidewalk counseling, operation rescue, clinic blockades. Uh, it's not really a very good book. It's not sympathetic. But it does kind of give you some indication about, like, who was doing what, where, when. As I'm reading this book, I just kind of realized, you know, Michael, you know, if you think abortion is as evil as it is, you can't fight this behind a desk. You know, you just you have to be out there trying to do something about it. Uh, you know, it's really important to be a presence in front of these abortion facilities. And at the time, I was a you know junior faculty at University of Alabama, and I was terrified. You know, I kept thinking to myself, okay, well, if I go to the abortion facility and I run to a student, or I run to a colleague, or what if somebody you know files a complaint or grievance against me? But I also realized, you know, Michael, if, you know, God's calling you to do something, you know, you should do it. Uh, that at the end of the day, you know, God, God will take care of you. So, uh, you know, one time I think I was advising the pro-life group. My students were invited to join a prayer vigil in front of the abortion clinic, and I joined them. I could just say, you know what, Michael, you're their faculty advisor. Uh, you're just, you know, being there to support your students. And I'm out there. I look around, and the sky's not falling, and my dean's not yelling at me, and nothing, you know, you know bad's happening to me directly. I'm like, you know what, Michael, you're capable of doing this. So, you know, I started sidewalk counseling in Alabama, 
And during my time there, uh, I'll be honest, uh, I never ran into my dean. I never, you know, that I'm aware of. I never ran into a student of mine or any UA student, to be honest, that I knew of. And I did run into a colleague of mine once, but he actually liked what I was doing. Uh, he was actually a pro-life liberal, but thought the people praying outside the Tuscaloosa abortion clinic was a good thing. So he kind of admired what we were up to. So I thought that was kind of a, a nice exchange. So, uh, you know, I've kind of saw what counseled off and on. I moved to Washington, D.C. in 2018. Uh, one day, I, after getting settled in, I took a trip to the Planned Parenthood, and I discovered that there weren't that many people there. You know, there used to be a very strong contingent of sidewalk counselors, but the Planned Parenthood moved locations, and just circumstantially, a lot of people quit coming. So I've tried to build that back up, and, you know, it's not the sort of activity that people are going to always bang down your door and want to do. But, you know, bit by bit, we've got more people out there. We have a better presence out there. And, uh, you know, again, it's it's not for everybody. Uh, but I really think there's really no better way to build a culture of life than being a prayerful presence wherever abortions are taking place. That is fantastic. So you've, you're combining not only the understanding, kind of the, the philosophical and in many ways theological understanding with hard research and then boots on the ground activity. Absolutely. Yeah. What's it like being a sidewalk counselor? That's not something I've done. Yep. I joke that sidewalk counseling is both the best and the worst thing I do every week. You know, it's not necessarily something I, not necessarily something I look forward to. You know, it's because honestly, you know, we're in a very liberal city. We get very little support from passersby. Uh, it's also the sort of thing where you just don't always see, you know, positive things happening in front of you every day. You know, you're a good prayerful presence. I think the prayers, you know, have an impact. I think there are things that go on we just simply don't see. Uh, but if you're looking for, you know, exciting situations where women change their mind because of your presence, that does happen, but doesn't happen every day. So it's just something you have to be very patient with and just very prayerful. So again, you know, there's a lot of pushback. Uh, there's clinic escorts to try to, you know, be disruptive of what we're trying to do. But it's just important to be prayerful, be holy. You know, I always joke that uh, I have one of the best jobs in the pro-life movement. Uh, because, uh, you know, I do writing, I research, I get to be on great podcasts like this one, I get to be on the radio, I get an occasional TV interview once in a while. Uh, you know, these are fun, pleasant activities. I don't have to raise money, for the most part, and I don't have to deal with real people with real problems as I choose to do so. So I think it's kind of important to, you know, pay my dues in a way, that I would argue that a lot of the important work of the pro-life movement, you know, doesn't necessarily make the front page of the paper. You know, the Supreme Court decisions and the election night parties are, you know, important, and there's certainly a role for that. But day in, day out, it's sidewalk hostlers, prayer warriors, people running pregnancy help centers. You know, they're making a big difference in people's lives every day. So, you know, I think it's important sometimes to do work that's not always fun or pleasant. Uh, but I think it's important to be a presence out there, and I'm, I'm happy to do it. Well, now, you mentioned some of the positive policies and laws that you saw in your research that you conducted now at this point, almost 20 years ago, what are some of the policies that have been particularly effective in reducing abortion rates? Well, a couple of things. I mean, first off, uh, you know, prior to the uh, overturning of Roe v. Wade, you know, the best thing, you know, one can do to stop abortion short of, you know, banning it is defunding it. And, uh, Every researcher who's looked at it seriously, or at least almost every researcher who's looked at this seriously, has found the Hyde Amendment, which prevents the federal Medicaid program 
uh, for paying for elective abortions, uh, has found that's been a very effective tool uh, for saving lives. So uh, you know, when Roe v. Wade was handed down, um, you know, pro-lifers realized that you know we couldn't necessarily get Roe v. Wade overturned in the, sh- in the short term. We could do some incremental things, and one thing we wanted to do was protect the conscience rights of taxpayers and take some steps, you know, to you know save as many preborn children as we could. So you know, we'd Congressman Henry Hyde came up with the Hyde Amendment. And that, again, prevented the federal Medicaid program from paying for elective abortions. And it was first passed in 1976, went through a bunch of litigation. It was actually upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1980 in Harris v. McRae. That was one of our first big legal victories. And by and large, since 1980, the federal government's been out of the business of paying for elective abortions. And uh, back in 2010, you know, Center for Reproductive Rights did an analysis. Uh, you know, they found the Hyde Amendment saved a million lives. And obviously, they're a group that supports legal abortion. I did an analysis for the Lowe's Institute in 2016. It was for the 40th anniversary of the Hyde Amendment. I found it saved over 2 million lives. And I revised that again in 2020 and found the numbers up to 2.4 million. So again, there's just a very solid body of research showing that, you know, if you quit funding abortion through Medicaid, abortion numbers go down. That's a trend you're seeing. What are some things working against us in the pro-life movement? Yeah, right now, um, you know, with this post-Dobbs era, you know, there's challenges and opportunities, and there's just a lot of things that we need to be aware of. Uh, one thing we've done well as a movement, and we don't talk about this nearly enough, one thing we've done really well is we've gotten abortion numbers down. Uh, this does not get the attention it deserves. Even before Dobbs, between like 1980 and, say, you know, 2019, 2020, we cut the abortion rate in half. You know, I think that's really remarkable. You know, I think if you would have put me into a time machine and sent me back to 1980 and, you know, I could talk to the pro-life leaders back in 1980 and sitting around the table are Jack Wilkie and Joe Scheidler and Nellie Gray and Miller Jefferson. I told them, say, look, it took us 42 years to overturn Roe v. Wade. And that was probably a lot longer than you think it would take. But even before we overturned Roe v. Wade, we cut the abortion rate in half. I think those pro-life leaders were pretty skeptical about this uh, visitor from 2022, but that's exactly what did happen. So we actually did well getting abortion numbers down. And before, you know, the reversal of Roe, I would tell that to every pro-life audience, saying, you know, maybe we're not making as much progress as we'd like. We are making real progress. So don't be discouraged. You know, abortion numbers are falling, you know, in part because of our efforts. So that's a positive trend. Unfortunately, you know, prior to Dobbs, we saw some evidence that abortion numbers were ticking back up a bit. And there is a couple of reasons for this. First off, a lot of blue states are repealing pro-life laws. Uh, you know, Illinois, for instance, they've started funding abortion through their state Medicaid program. That'll get that's gotten abortion numbers up in that state. Maine, tragically, is funding abortion through their state Medicaid program. Illinois repealed their pro-life parental involvement law. Uh, Massachusetts, you know, weakened uh, their pro-life parental involvement law. So we see some pushback in blue states where they're repealing or weakening existing pro-life laws. Also, there's been a big increase in chemical, well, not a big increase, but there has been a pretty sizable increase in chemical abortion. I think recent data from Guttmacher shows that over half of all abortions right now are chemical abortions. And that's something the other side is really pushing to try to circumvent uh, the pro-life laws we have. Uh, The Biden administration tragically has changed some of the FDA rules, and now women can obtain chemical abortion pills without an in-person medical examination. And that's just awful. I mean, the chemical abortion pills are obviously fatal to the unborn child, but dangerous to women as well. If a woman has an ectopic pregnancy, and undergoes a chemical abortion. That could be fatal. If a woman is further along in gestation than she realizes and undergoes a chemical abortion, that could have some pretty serious health consequences. So, you know, that's a trend that concerns me, just kind of the uptick in numbers pre-Dobbs and this increase in chemical abortions. Those are 
kind of chilling numbers and kind of ideas, especially the chemical abortion, the increase in those is something, of course, that we're seeing and, and have grave concerns about. Are there signs of hope for you? You, you mentioned the, the great good of reducing abortions by half, you know, since 1980. Where do you see signs of hope? Well, one big sign of hope is that this summer we overturned Roe v. Wade. Uh, the Dobbs decision was a great day. And honestly, as someone, you know, who's been doing pro-life work since the 90s, uh, I didn't – this day came faster than I thought it would. I thought we'd chip away. You know, I thought the Supreme Court at some point would let us, you know, limit late-term abortions and they might open up the range of areas where we could, you know, pass pro-life laws. But I did not expect to see Roe v. Wade come down in one fell swoop. Uh, but it did. And we've done well kind of taking advantage of that, that right now there's 13 states where – Preborn children are protected throughout, you know, all stages of gestation. Um, you know, Georgia has a heartbeat law in effect where unborn children are protected after a fetal heartbeat can be detected. Uh, Governor DeSantis of Florida uh, signed a pain-capable law that uh, protects preborn children after 15 weeks gestation. So, um, you know, that's you know giving me reason for hope. And we have good data showing that a lot of these laws are, you know, having an impact. Uh, Society for Family Planning released a study a couple weeks ago. They found the first two months after Dobbs, Number of abortions went down by about 10,000. I think that was a fairly conservative estimate, but it does show that lives are being saved. And last week, uh, the Lowe's Institute uh, did a study of mine on the Texas Heartbeat Act. And that was really the first law that really, you know, was upheld the early protected preborn children in a substantial way. I mean, that was upheld uh, September 1st, uh, 2021, when that law went into effect. And we saw abortion numbers fall instantly in Texas. Numbers went down by like 60% that first month. Now, the problem we have, you know, with kind of calculating the impact of these laws is either side says, sure, you know, in-state abortion numbers went down, but women just got abortions in other states, or they ordered chemical abortion drugs through the mail, or they just obtained abortions illegally. But what I did is I circumvented that problem by looking at births. And about seven months after the Heartbeat Act took effect, you saw a very high number of, birth, of you know, births in Texas. So I would say between... Um, March and July of 2022, 5,000 more children were born in Texas. And, you know, it's, I think a lot of that is because of the Heartbeat Act. You know, there's some population gains and maybe there's been a post-COVID baby bump, but there was a big increase in births. So the fact that more children are being born in Texas, I think, is pretty powerful evidence that the Heartbeat Act is having a, a real positive impact and really protecting a, a lot of children. What about the next generation? You know, we always hear, and one of the most joyful things that we see at the March for Life every year has been the ever-increasing number of young people participating. Of course, here at Notre Dame, we're always delighted to bring hundreds, if not a thousand, of our students to the March for Life, but they're not alone. What do you see in terms of the future attitudes towards abortion among rising generations? No, it's interesting that you know young people are a lot more active and a lot more organized on this issue today than when I was in college. Uh, well, even as, a, as an undergrad at Dartmouth, even in conservative political circles, a lot of people are not pro-life. You know, I'd say when I think of the classmates of mine who were active in conservative politics at the time, I thought a third were like pro-life and serious. Thought was important. A third were pro-life on paper. You know, they thought it was the right position, but it wasn't that important to them. And a third were probably actively pro-choice or supported legal abortion. Now, very rarely would I find like a student today active in college Republicans who's not pro-life. 
So, you know, I think certainly that, you know, we've made some real headway amongst amongst students. And it was interesting that, uh, you know, I've been on college campuses pretty much every year since 1993, either as a undergrad, a grad student, a researcher, a faculty member. And one thing that, you know, frustrated me throughout the 90s and into the 2000s was the pro-life movement wasn't really investing all that much in youth outreach. So my research got attention around 2004 when the Heritage Foundation released that study of mine. And, um, you know, I got to meet with a lot of pro-life leadership in the country. And every pro-life leader I met with, I told the same thing. Invest in youth outreach. Invest in youth outreach. And they say, Michael, yeah, great idea. I, that's not what my nonprofit does. I can't raise money for it. Uh, everyone agreed that it should happen, but nobody was doing it. Finally, around 2006, kind of Students for Life, you know, got some money together. And, you know, instead of being a volunteer group, they had professional staff. Finally, you know, youth outreach. And uh, they, their field program is great. Every campus I've been at, uh, Alabama, Michigan-Dearborn, Ave Maria, CUA, uh, their field reps have been you know, very helpful to both me and my students. So again, it's just great to see young people who care about this issue a great deal. I love going to the Students Life of America Summit. You know, they have over a thousand students, you know, interested in pro-life issues. It's just heartening to see the cavalry coming up behind me. Well, that's a message of great hope that I think we can take and, and know that the battle is not over. But we know how the war ends in the long run, right? Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, we sort of have our work cut out for us. You know, I think I'm out of the famous Winston Churchill quote, this is not the end. It's not the beginning of the end, but might well be the end of the beginning. And, you know, we have our work cut out for us. But we have made some real progress. We shouldn't you know, forget that. So, you know, we've gotten abortion numbers down. We've gotten Roe v. Wade overturned. Uh, I think there's a lot of reasons for hope. But we just have to keep up our efforts. And it has to be a wide range of things. It's, you know, there's, there's no magic bullet. You know, it's prayer. It's legislation, it's education, uh, it's sidewalk counseling, it's supporting our pregnancy help centers. It's multifaceted. So, you know, everyone can do something to build a culture of life. Fantastic. Well, Michael New, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast and for leaving us with this positive message of hope and the challenge. Glad to do it. Thanks for having me. Thank you to Michael New. In the show notes, you will find links to some of his commentaries and blog posts. Subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast so that you can always get the latest episodes by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. We would love your feedback. Please review the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and email your suggestions to cecpodcast at nd.edu. Our theme music is, I don't know, by Grapes, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions. <laughs>